I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Our guest on Keeping Democracy Today writes, History might not repeat exactly, but there are certain themes that can be detected throughout. Rights over one's body are a rather disquieting example of a theme that legitimized 19th century laws requiring, requiring the kidnapping of fugitive slaves, even in the North, and new 21st century laws which require forced birthing. Yes, there are similarities and lessons to learn. Our guest, author Ed Simon, raises the important question on the History News Network, what the fugitive slave law can teach us about anti-abortion legislation. Well, no matter the job we have before us, of course, you got to have the right tools. Some imagine history to be of little or no use, but in fact there are tools readily available which are of unique suitability to the tasks we face today. In many cases, people actually die needlessly because of refusal to learn vital, sometimes obvious lessons. The most obvious example is, of course, Vietnam. How many have died and lost limbs in new Vietnams in Afghanistan and Iraq? And now, after decades of Believing that reproductive rights were secure and solidly established, women would never again have to face dangerous back-alley abortions. New state laws are arising, rendering a woman as less than. Like a fugitive slave, she's not her own property. Both, instead, the slave and the woman a property of white ruling men with the power of the state set against them, erasing their treasured constitutional rights. There is indeed much to learn from history. It helps us determine how to approach the future as it enables us to learn from our past. What were the laws that required Americans who were against slavery to participate in its injustices? How is it that in the land of the free, some people became legally required to surrender their rights over their own bodies? What can we learn today in the 21st century from the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850? Who would have the vision to see the similarities of the old unjust laws and the new ones other than an historian? Ed Simon is the author of America and Other Fictions and an editor for the British site and I may mispronounce this, Berfroy, is that it, Ed? I think it's Berfroy, yeah. Berfroy, okay, I was doing the French on it. A frequent contributor (laughs) uh, at several different sites. He writes about culture, religion, literature, and politics. His book, Furnace of This World, will be released by Zero Books at the end of the summer. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Ed Simon. Interesting. Thank you for having me on. Well, interesting subject. I never would have thought of that. Well, you write that... Southern apologists have long claimed that the war against secession, also known as the Civil War, was about states' rights. Mm -hmm. You you say that in one ironic sense, 
They're right. Quote, the war was precipitated by a violation of regional sovereignty of northern states' rights, end of quote. And you provide a case in point, something that happened in Boston in 1854, not exactly part of the Confederacy, involving a man named Anthony Burns. Please tell us what happened and how that is a case in point of a violation of regional sovereignty of northern states' rights. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, the way I sort of phrased the beginning of this essay, uh, I meant to be, uh, in one part, intentionally provocative by sort of uh, playing with that rhetoric of uh, states' rights, but then a lot of what I meant was um, very seriously literal as well, right? Uh, And one of the things that I think a lot of people aren't quite aware of is that in the years leading up to the American Civil War, the majority of Northerners were not particularly abolitionist, right? That was sort of um, a a radical fringe that was interested in that issue, even while many Northerners themselves may have found slavery to be personally unpalatable. They viewed it as something that was a Southern issue. They didn't have to really be bothered with it. It didn't happen in the North uh, or had not happened for quite a long time in the North, so they didn't really pay attention to it. Uh, In 1850, when you have the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, which is a federal law, uh, you suddenly have uh, Northerners enlisted in the enforcement of slavery, because under the stipulations of this law, should any slave escape to freedom in the North, the any Northerner who uh, is witness to the capture of this slave, this kidnapping of this slave, uh, is enlisted in having to assist theoretically in the return of that slave to their quote unquote, or that enslaved person, I should say, to their quote unquote owner, right? right. Uh, so Anthony Burns uh, was a, a gentleman who was from Virginia. He was enslaved in Virginia, uh, and he escaped to Boston. So, you know, Boston sort of was uh, the center of abolitionist thought in the North, uh, more so arguably than any other major northern city. Uh, and uh, federal uh, marshals uh, arrested him in 1854 uh, and sent him uh, back to Virginia. And this was something that was uh, kind of a lightning rod in terms of waking up otherwise moderate, centrist Northerners who were not particularly abolitionist into an awareness that they couldn't compartmentalize this as simply a regional issue because they were now, in a very visceral kind of way, implicated uh, in the laws of the slave states. So that the Northerners had to act. So it wasn't just, uh, as you describe, American Northern American attitudes toward the peculiar institution of the South until the fugitive slave law, Northerners enjoyed what you refer to as willful ignorance of life and laws south of the Ohio River. So, For the most part, yeah. What was it about the passage of the fugitive slaves laws that made, made it such that such willful influence, as you say, could no longer be countenanced? Sure. For those who wished no part in slavery were now directly implicated in its, in its practice. So the plantations were just in the south. They weren't slaves up north. In what ways was slavery no longer a regional issue? So if you lived in an area where slavery was disdained and looked down on, how might you become ensnared in the continuance of its injustice? That's a good question. I think that, in part, things like the Burns issue brought home to Northerners who had not traveled in the South the brutality of slavery. So I think that there was now, you know, there was a, a man who had lived in Boston. He was a Baptist minister. He was a respected individual. Uh, and the awareness that this human being who had a name and a face and a life in the North 
could be brought back into slavery in the South was something that personalized the issue for a lot of people uh, in a manner that I think had not been quite personalized before. Uh, I also think that there was, uh, and you see this as well in sort of the popularity of books like Uncle Tom's Cabin or whatever that kind of made the issue, um, even if that's sort of like a sentimental novel, but made it more personal to people in a way that it maybe had not been before. There was also, I think, um, maybe separate from even the moral issue involved with slavery, uh, an issue for Northerners of what neo-Confederate apologists sometimes called states' rights, a sense that in the North, slavery was not legal, but that they were being kind of um, forced into uh, following these laws that were not the laws of these particular states. So this sense that you know, a slave owner in Virginia or the Carolinas or Georgia or whatever uh, suddenly had a certain power over people living in Massachusetts or New York or New Hampshire uh, that they had not had before. And I think that there was um, kind of a, a sense of, of state sovereignty being uh, violated in that way. And the Fugitive Slave Act had a tremendous influence in really, in some sense, radicalizing people in the North who thought that there was this tremendous, and we're correct, that there was this tremendous political power in the slave-owning states that they interpreted as overstepping its constitutional bounds by that point. Interesting. So this the Fugitive Slave Act was passed by the United States Congress, correct? So I wonder, that must yeah. have been interesting because, you know, not everybody in Congress uh, supported slavery. How, how did, did it pass easily or... You know, I, I, there must have been some opposition to it. I have no idea. I'm sure, yeah. And that, and I have to be, you know, a total mea culpa. I'm not, um, I'm, you know, I'm not a historian of the time period, so I'm not necessarily uh, particularly cognizant on, on the details of the actual passage of it. I mean, I will say that uh, slave-owning states had a disproportionate yes. amount of legislative power that came out of the Three-Fifths Compromise, mm. uh, this sort of, like, profoundly cynical... A uh, bit of uh, legislative chicanery that allowed Southern states to have to not count enslaved people as being people, right. but to still, from their population numbers, kind of bulk up the amount of representation that they got in the House of Representatives. Uh, so even you know in the North, which had a, a higher population, the South had an inordinate uh, amount of political influence. You know, and that's a situation for the exact same reasons uh, that still exists today yeah. in a lot of ways. Well, you know, the the South having so much power over the central government must have frustrated a lot of people. And, uh, you know, it seems like that power, of course, didn't end with the defeat of the South, that the the South uh, still has power. It must have frustrated a lot of people in the North who don't want Southern values imposed on them, and the South didn't want Northern values imposed on them. But... uh, they had that power. They just, and that must, you know, I'm sure that led to the uh, war against secession, not allowing the South to have its independence. So tell us about moving ahead, oh, 160 years or so, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> a little more than that, actually. Tell us about Georgia's HB 481 from 2019. Sure. So this is uh, one of a litany of kind of um, anti-abortion laws that have been passed uh, by a sort of succession of state governments over the past few weeks. So Georgia uh, has been joined by uh, Missouri, by notoriously Alabama, which now has uh, the sort of most anti-abortion law of any state in the country, and that I don't believe had been passed at the time I actually wrote the uh, the essay. 
uh, and another of uh, a number of other uh, bits of legislation that have either passed or been pending in, in several other states. Uh, the reason that I make the comparison um, between the Fugitive Slave Act and the law that just passed in Georgia uh, is sort of twofold. Uh, the one is that I wanted to make explicit the connection between anti-choice rhetoric and law uh, and a certain element of slavery, right? And that, that comparison that I'm making is that both being anti-choice or, or uh, anti-woman uh, laws, anti-abortion laws, right. uh, and slavery, uh, as sort of distant and different as they may be in some regards, are very similar in one sense, and that's that they both deny the bodily autonomy of a certain segment of the population. Mm-hmm. It basically says, because of who you are, whether you're African-American or a woman, you are not entitled to certain things that other people in our society are entitled to. So that's the comparison that I make that I, I hold to very literally. I don't think that that is... a um, I don't think that comparison between those things is mere metaphor. I no. think that there's something that is like slavery about that. The other reason that I made the comparison is because under the stipulations of the Georgia state law, theoretically, uh, if a woman should leave Georgia to have uh, a legal abortion in another state, right. she can be charged uh, with murder under the, the stipulations of this law. Uh, and anyone, regardless of where they are, who helps her procure this abortion can be implicated in conspiracy to commit murder. So suddenly, in a way not dissimilar to the Fugitive Slave Act, if uh, you assist a woman to uh, get an abortion in New York or Massachusetts or wherever, uh, you could theoretically be implicated under Georgia state law. So suddenly this kind of, well, this is a state's rights issue, this is a regional issue, implicates those of us who are pro-choice living in states that have more liberal abortion law. And that's why I kind of made that parallel. No, that's it's absolutely amazing. You know, they can argue for states' rights, and you know, some people could think, "Oh, this is you know just the old Confederacy up to their old you know racist stuff." But as with the fugitive slave law, that was a federal law that, uh, if anybody, as you say, uh, uh, helped a fugitive slave, uh, helped uh, you know stolen property shall we say uh r- remain hidden and kept from the law the, the long arm of the law then that person can also be charged with uh cont- i mean a, a, a crime it's absolutely amazing and i wonder okay say a a a woman uh, has an you know unwanted pregnancy an unplanned pregnancy mm-hmm. is in difficult situations and it is a difficult you know, decision for women to make. Sure. It's not an easy thing. But sure. if she is from one of these states and mm-hmm. figures, well, I'll just go to New York or Vermont or Massachusetts and get my legal abortion there. Uh, you say the possibility for punishment does not end at Georgia's borders. That That is I, amazing. As the law is written, and I think one of the things, too, is, you know, um, what is this supposed to look like in practicality, right? Like, so if you're um, an abortion doctor in New York uh, and you land, uh, you know, you have a layover in Atlanta, are you going to come get arrested, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what they expect that this will look like. I think that the, the real intent of the Georgia law and all of these laws is they're trying to force uh, a federal opinion. They're trying to get this to the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I think that yes, that's yes. in part why the laws are written in kind of the uh, extremist manner that they are. Uh, and that also brings home, uh, you know, an important difference between the Georgia state law and the, and the Fugitive Slave Act is that the, the latter, of course, is a federal law and the, 
and the former is, as of now, a state law. But I have no necessary faith that should all, one of these laws find its way before uh, the Supreme Court, that they would necessarily um, side in a way that wouldn't overturn Roe v. Wade. So I think that, like, this is an issue that threatens to potentially metastasize over the next few years or even months, uh, and that's why we have to be so aware and so vigilant of what's happening in these states in terms of what could impose particular values in those states in a more sort of national way, right? Uh, it's just, it's almost unthinkable, but here we are in 2019. Yeah. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, our guest today, this is uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is author Ed Simon. We're discussing his article, What the Fugitive Slave Law from the 19th Century Can Teach Us About Anti-Abortion Legislation That's Going On Right Now. So, it, taking us back into the 19th century, a fugitive slave might think he or she was was safe once they crossed the old Mason-Dixon line. But apparently, you know, even if they're in another state, they were not really safe i mean is that is that correct that that's how it was then that they you know they oh absolutely yeah i mean a- anyone who uh communities of freed african americans um you know who's already lived under quite a brit- bit of persecution even in the north obviously uh, i think the fugitive slave act um was a sea change in consciousness in terms of being really uh rightly uh disturbed and worried about the possibility of being um Sent to the South, and this is something. I mean, there are instances of people who had never been enslaved who were kidnapped and sent to the South. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. the, it was um, an additionally awful thing that happened in an already brutal and evil system. Uh, and I think that the awareness of how uh, draconian and authoritarian things were becoming out of that sort of slave system was something that um, really did alter the way a lot of Northerners thought about the issue. It kind of moved them from maybe um, a position of appeasement in the center Uh. to one that was a little bit more, you know, maybe this is something that will ultimately have to be taken care of in, in a different way. Yeah, interesting. There's so many different issues that people, you know, if they don't have to look at them every day, yeah, they don't exist, you know, out of sight, out of mind. But (laughs) I'm guessing this was not intentional by the slave states and the power of the slave owning uh, community that they uh, it had the uh, opposite effect of of actually uh, waking people up that they needed to do something about uh, this uh, this uh, slavery issue and people, uh, you know, trying to uh, have their freedom over their own bodies, which, you know, black people now, of course, you know, know. Of course, everybody knows about the history of slavery, but uh, the people back then, they they didn't, it was a very, very, very difficult situation for the slaves. And I guess it took until, uh, was the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, it must have been overturned or found unconstitutional. I'm I not even sure. I believe it was uh, nullified in like 1863. So like in the no, midst of sense. the uh, Civil War, I could right. be off by a year it's, there, but... Uh, it was during the the war itself that it was actually overturned. And then, of course, it's completely invalidated by the 13th and 14th uh, Amendment. Yes, uh, declaring slavery illegal. Of course, slavery continued uh, undercover for a long time, even in the 20th sure. century. But that's another story. Well, Governor Brian Kemp uh, signed this law. He's the governor of Georgia. What about 
his legitimacy, actually, mm. you know, you bring up that point as well. He signed this sure. law. He's he's pretty right wing. What what about uh, that? And and his opponent uh, may have actually won. Talk about that a little bit. This is a really good point, and this is something that I tried to emphasize uh, in the in the essay. Is I very much didn't want the essay to kind of come across as being uh, overly knee jerk. Southern in terms of the people who live in the South. I didn't want it to be this kind of like, I didn't want to come across as like an, a Yankee just sort of talking yeah. about the, the South in this negative way. But I was trying to differentiate between people who live and have to live under maybe unjust systems in the South versus the unjust system itself. So one of the sort of um, parallels that I make is when we're talking about the antebellum era, uh, of course, the vast majority of people in the South had no say over the political uh, decisions that were made because many of them were slaves, obviously, or enslaved people. Uh, but also, well, most poor whites had absolutely no say uh, in the sort of political, economic, cultural, social questions of the South either. Uh, you kind of have a parallel today as well, where if you take a look at a state like Georgia, this is a state that, for all intents and purposes, should be a blue state, yes. right? It should be a democratic state. Land is a large city. It's a cosmopolitan city. Uh, it's overwhelmingly African-American. The state has a double-digit African-American population. Uh, and Stacey Abrams, who ran uh, as a Democratic uh, candidate, African-American woman, uh, running last November, um, was incredibly popular. And as uh, Kemp, who was, uh, I believe he was the Attorney General, yes. uh, but he who defeated Oh, no, Secretary of uh, State, actually. Oh, sorry, okay, you're right. Uh, defeated her in the election, uh, and in terms of voter disenfranchisement uh, and those sorts of things. So I think it's important to remember that when we're talking about things like the abortion law in Georgia right now, that does not necessarily reflect the opinions or reality of very many people who live down there. Uh-huh. And those are the people, after all, who will, who will suffer under that particular law. So I think it's important not just to think... Um, to view these, the passage of these laws from sort of a position of superiority where we think, you know, we're enlightened and we don't do those sorts mm-hmm. of things in the North, but to remember that it's actually affecting the lives of people who live in places like Georgia and Alabama and to always be cognizant of that particular fact. Uh, so, yeah, and, and it does seem that the, the person who was in charge of counting the votes, Secretary of State Brian yeah, Kemp, yes. Uh, may have uh, diddled with the voting a little bit. There's a lot of yeah, question about his legitimacy. No, absolutely, and, and and people who you know were disenfranchised, much as you know poor whites and and black people back then were also disenfranchised. So history continues. It's amazing. So, in what ways do you think the the new anti-choice laws over are are similar? to the Fugitive Slave Act in terms, you know, because the new laws over women's bodily autonomy. Mm. Under the new laws that we're talking about, where does that right legally reside in these new laws? So where is, who holds the right over women's bodily autonomy? Oh, I think, as, as I read it philosophically, I think that that right is invested into the state. I mean, I think that the way that these laws are written, they basically tell women that they do not have a right to decide on their own necessary medical procedures and that that decision belongs to the government. So if we're talking about government overreach, which 
theoretically, I've heard conservatives are supposed to be against government overreach, but I don't see much evidence that they actually are. I, it seems to me that the right in this country likes using the government quite a bit to enforce their own particular values and positions. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but you're basically saying uh, that should a woman be pregnant, she has absolutely no choice on ending what is a uh, sort of voluntary medical state that she's in, right? And this is something that I'm never going to have to, personally, like I'm never going to be pregnant. Uh, I have autonomy over my own body, so the government can't tell me what I can or can't do in terms of medical procedures. But the state of Georgia is saying that they can tell 50% of the population uh, of women that uh, the state can tell them what they may or may not do with their body. And I think that that uh, there, if we're talking about uh, slavery as being a system which denies people uh, a right to their bodily autonomy and that the state will tell them what they can do with it, that's what you are seeing with these sort of laws that are passing in Missouri and Georgia and Alabama and so on. Uh, history. It just goes on and on and on. And to think, you know, that the state, how they can call themselves conservative, it's, it's sort of a, a mm. pet peeve of mine because it's anything but conservative. No, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's giving, you know, they rail against uh, the old Soviet, Soviet government that had all the power. The state had all the power over individuals. Hello. <laughs> you know, they're, they're doing that themselves and it, nothing conservative about that whatsoever. But what about what about the argument about states rights? You know, the southern states passing these laws, you know, taking away federal constitutionally guaranteed reproductive rights, argue that they're they're a matter of states rights. I mean, yeah, they're they're. States do have some rights, and that's been a long discussion throughout American history as to, you know, where, where, how much power the states have versus how much power the federal government has. And they say that each state, I mean, why not each state have its own laws regarding abortion? I mean, why is that not states' rights? I think one of the things we need to remember with the um, politicized arm of the so-called pro-life movement uh, is that oftentimes, rhetorically, when they engage in these debates, it's a profoundly disingenuous bad faith argument, uh, and uh, across all sorts of different aspects of the argument. But when it comes to the states' rights issue in particular, uh, I don't think that they, and the, the Georgia law would show where they theoretically would penalize people who had an abortion in the state where, that has liberal abortion laws. They don't actually believe in states' rights on this, right? They want to force a federal issue to overturn Roe v. Wade. Like, that's the intent behind these laws. I don't think anyone that writes these laws in places like Ohio or Georgia or Alabama uh, is okay with the idea that there's going to be um, more liberal abortion laws in other states. They don't think that. They want abortion to be a uh, blanket banned across the United States. So I, I always find the kind of states' rights issue when it comes to that to be um, completely theoretical, because it's not what any of us are actually talking about, even though sometimes the anti-choice movement pretends uh, that it is. And a lot of them, I think, are pretty upfront that their goal is that they want to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate goal, yes. is that not only will you not be able to get an abortion in Atlanta, but you won't be able to get an abortion in Los Angeles or New York City as well, right? right. Like, that's their goal. Uh, it, it's almost amusing. They, they, you know, make a lot of noise about states' rights, but their ultimate goal is to have vastly increased power no. for the central government. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. It's, it's so exactly opposite of what they claim to be for. They want the federal government to have 
much more power over us as individuals. And, you know, one has heard the expression, land of the free. <laughs> I, I remember that. Uh, well, you, you also write, I mean, it, it's a very interesting article you, in that you write about Harriet Jacobs, a formerly enslaved woman living in New York. She noted that the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law was, quote, the beginning of a reign of terror to African-Americans living free in the North. Again, wow, how did that work? How was it a reign of terror for people, for freed slaves living in uh, the North? I think just in the sort of um, psychological change that is affected by the knowledge that you are no longer even free, technically on free soil, uh, is something that had a profound shift in people's consciousness and people's awareness. Uh, that even people who had uh, escaped to freedom or been born into freedom understood that uh, in a larger sense, they weren't even free there, right? And that theoretically, you could run aground of somebody and you could be sent uh, to North Carolina or you could be sent to Virginia or wherever. Uh, And that, you know, being in uh, Maine or New Hampshire or Vermont was no guarantee of your freedom. And I I think that that sort of um, psychological toll uh, and then sometimes very literal toll Sure. Uh, was something that was a, was a massive shift. And not, you know, just not knowing. It, it is uh, quite uh, frightening to know that at any moment you can be grabbed and sent back, and then as property, you've got no rights. You've got no rights whatsoever. And I think, Go ahead. You know, and I think right now people should be aware that we have this, this far-right kind of yeah. uh, process working through the states, working through the federal government, working through the judiciary, uh, and we are, you know, potentially seeing uh, the possibility that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. Yes. We are seeing the possibility that uh, people will need to, you know, secretly assist women to have safe abortions if they need them, right? Like, this is a different thing than what we've had uh, since the 1970s. It's, it's in one sense a return to a pre-Roe world. Uh, it's potentially uh, a return to a worse world. Yes. Uh, because even before uh, the legalization of abortion uh, across the country, uh, women themselves weren't imprisoned, right, for uh, for abortion. So, um, you know, I think that in the same way that Jacobs had this kind of like, you know, there has to be an awareness of this reign of terror, I think we should all be very cognizant of what's at stake uh, and where this kind of far-right contingent wants to take this country. And that's really what we're talking about here. And they, the people who are behind this anti-choice stuff, know exactly what they're Mm -hmm. doing. They've been packing the courts and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, liberals, uh, regular, you know, constitutional believing patriots uh, have been sort of asleep at the switch a little bit when it comes to uh, filling the courts and filling, putting new judges on there. And of course, the Supreme Court it may happen now. It may happen now. And and I got to tell you, back in the late 80s, I was working with uh, Peg Doby, who is long since deceased. She was an amazing organizer of the New Hampshire Abortion Rights Action League. And we were making phone calls supporting pro-choice candidates. And I actually said to her, Isn't the, are we kind of done? Isn't it kind of settled? Mm. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had no idea. And you write that, that the fugitive slave laws had a galvanizing effect. Uh, similar to what's going on now. People in the North who opposed slavery were comfortable knowing it was a problem somewhere else. But you quote Amos Adams Lawrence on this. In what ways did the fugitive slave laws radicalize many complacent Northerners? And I have a feeling, you know, a lot of people who have been sort of like, oh, yeah, it's the law of the land, Roe versus Wade, uh, 
perhaps sure. it might uh, radicalize and uh, uh, shake people out of their complacency. So tell us about Amos Adams Lawrence. Sure. Yeah, he has, and I'm paraphrasing here, but his quote is basically, you know, the day before the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, a lot of Northerners went to bed as kind of like centrist Whigs, you know, it was like a political party at the time. Uh, and the next day they woke up as kind of like uh, stark raving radical abolitionists, right? <laughs> so uh, any kind of sense of the uh, the good faith of the opposition, I think, was scrambled by the Fugitive Slave Act. And this is something that sometimes, uh, and it's inexact to call abolitionists the, the liberals of the time, but they kind of were. I think it's not totally unfair to kind of make a comparison there. Uh, but one of the things, and I think it's maybe uh, natural in the, the liberal perspective or outlook on the world, is uh, they will give a lot of latitude towards the opposition. There's a, a sense that people can disagree without being disagreeable, uh, and a real respect for kind of uh, democratic conversation. And that's a, that's a good and admirable sure. and idealistic way to view the world. Sometimes uh, the opposition on the right uh, is not so noble in yeah. how they do things. <laughs> and, and I think that um, liberals don't always quite get that. Uh, and I think one of the things uh, that I've always said about our current political era uh, is that the right, the, the conservatives, are kind of becoming a little more honest about what they've always thought about things. They're becoming more vulgar. They're becoming more openly and nakedly racist and yes, sexist. Yes. But it's a kind of, a lot of stuff is coming to the surface uh, that I think was maybe sublimated in the past. So for, like, you know, well-meaning liberals of good conscience, the kind of idea um, that, uh, that, that this is a good-faith argument is out the window now, right? I think that there's a little bit more... Uh, of a nakedly ideological divide. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, only in so much as maybe more people will realize the enormity of what we face uh, with the opposition. Uh, that was one of the things that I quote Frederick Douglass in the piece, um, where Frederick Douglass basically says that he's no longer going to be having this debate on the terms set by the slave owners. And I think that that's something important that we see currently with the anti-choice uh, argument, uh, anti-choice debates is that so often the anti-choice forces mm -hmm. have been able to kind of lie about the, the actual biology of the issue and lie about oh, the yes. ethics of the issue and have set the terms of the debate uh, and that pro-choice advocates have always argued within the confines of the debate as set by the anti-choice side. And I think if there's any kind of concrete thing we should get out of the passage of these laws is that we need to stop playing by the terms of the game as set by the anti-choice side. Because... Uh, they will oftentimes lie about the reality of things. They will oftentimes be disingenuous about the issues uh, that surround abortion. And I think that uh, as people that want to defend abortion rights, we have to stop using the language that they use. Now, you can't, as Audre Lorde once said, you can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tools, right? <laughs> Very interesting points, and uh, there's, there's so much uh, to that. And, you know, there's been this whole argument for, for centrism. You know, we, oh, we don't want to be too radical in the upcoming election. We want to be centrist. I, I don't know how you can be centrist when there's the rise of the, you know, far right. I mean, radical, radical right, yeah. which would, you know, they just want to dismantle uh, so many laws that, that guarantee individual freedom. And sure. I, I find it uh, interesting that, you know, people still go back to, uh, much as I love her, and I do, Michelle Obama said, mm. uh, when they go low, we go high. Uh, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. I agree. I agree. You know, we just have to, we have to fight fire with fire. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we are 
uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Ed Simon. We're talking about uh, what he has raised, what the Fugitive Slave Law can teach us about anti-abortion legislation, the connection between the 1850s and the mid-21st century here. Uh, So um, today, if one learns of stolen property, of course, you make an effort to return it. In the 19th century, human beings, of course, were property of others. The owner of said property certainly had more rights than the property itself, which the property itself, of course, had none. You say that today, those who advocate forced birthing are the intellectual descendants of the pro-slavery mm-hmm. faction. I'm sure people on the right would resent that, saying, how can you say that? I have, I'm not pro-slavery. In what ways? How does the property question come up? Well, I think it's interesting because the way in which, I mean, first and foremost, what both slavery and anti-abortion laws do are define a segment of the population as being uh, the property of the ruling class, which has historically been white men in this country, right? So, in oh, the yeah, first, I've noticed that. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's been a trend. Um, uh, you know, in the first instance, of course, it is uh, black women and men who are defined as the property of of landed white men. Uh, and in the current circumstance, where we're talking uh, about anti-abortion laws, it's uh, women and their rights, which are defined as the purview of, of men, right? The way that this is made possible and the sort of connection between them is they, they do uh, a sort of nifty, insidious, cynical little rhetorical maneuver whereby when you're talking about slavery, human beings are defined as less than human beings, suddenly which allows them to become the property of, of, of the ruling class. Uh, and in the current circumstances, something that is not a human being is defined as such... Yeah and I'm speaking of the, the embryo or the fetus or the zygote, uh, which then makes uh, a woman less than a person yes. in the eyes of the law in that particular way. So I, I think there's a kind of disingenuousness with the definitions of words that make these kind of uh, injustices possible. And the entire uh, kind of anti-abortion movement is predicated around uh, defining something which is admittedly potential human life as being the equivalent of a human being. Yes. And we've all kind of been having the debate on that, on those terms for a very long time, for decades. Uh, and I think that what's so problematic about that is that to refer to um, a just fertilized egg, for example, as being equivalent to a human being is wrong. Yeah. It's not. I mean, uh, I have respect for people... Uh, that view that as being potential human life, of course. Right. But to say that it is the same as a human being is biologically incorrect. Uh, and I think that uh, there's, a, there's a kind of nihilism in that, right? There's a profound relativism uh, in defining something that is not a human as being a human so as to then control the bodies of actual humans uh, is, uh, is a really... Um, sticky and troubling and terrible way to talk about things. Yeah, kind of outrageous, I'd have to say. And uh, under these laws, if I understand them correctly, uh, the, the, the mother, the woman, potential mother, uh, if she has an abortion, she, she is more of a criminal than the rapist, which is Correct, yeah. amazing. So yeah. she's the criminal, the rapist, who is obviously a man, <laughs> has a lot more rights than she does. I, I, it, it just, you know, and, and another thing. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, I think another thing that's important to keep in mind, and we have this whole kind of discussion about what 
a good faith argument looks like and who's being disingenuous with this. And if you look at the Alabama state law, uh, they make an exception for fertilized eggs that are part of in vitro fertilization, right? So if you do, because those are naturally destroyed as part of the process of, of keeping those fertilized eggs and so on. Uh, you, if you run an IVF clinic and you're destroying fertilized eggs as part of that process, Uh-oh. you're totally fine. You are not charged under this law. Oh, wow. And one state senator let slip. Uh, he said, well, those aren't in a woman. It's not a pregnant woman. So there's any doubt oh, that goodness. this is about policing women's bodies, their choices, their sexuality. He kind of let the cat out of the bag with that one, right? Because it's <laughs> not about the sanctity of a fertilized egg. It's about where that fertilized egg is. And if it's inside of a woman, then they are upset. If it's in a test tube, not at all, right? So I think that when they, when they kind of play this game, that they're standing up for the sanctity of human life, I think it's important to remember that they themselves know that they're not doing that. I have had a feeling, as, as someone who has stood as a uh, uh, guard, as an escort, back when uh, women used to get uh, really harassed going in to, you know, possibly have an abortion, that a lot of them, you know, just, they don't want people having sex. You know, it's Mm -hmm. weird to me. It's really weird. Mm -hmm. And former member of Congress, Barney Frank, put it so well, pro-lifers are pro-life from conception to birth. You know, they're not pro-life after you know, a baby is actually born, then you're on your own. It is hardly pro-life. Oh, yeah. They claim it's a, uh, it's a religious argument. In that aspect, this is interesting. You posit that the so-called pro-life movement is relatively modern, end of quote. I certainly did not know that Thomas Aquinas and Maimonides, highly respected figures in theological history, had opinions on this very topic. So, uh, you know, this... It, it is relatively modern. Tell us about that, please. That's a shocker to me. It is. And I think one of the things to to always emphasize with abortion is abortion has been around as long as pregnancy has been around, and it's going to be around after it's theoretically made illegal. Uh, the only question is how safe is that procedure going to be? Because abortion is sometimes uh, medically or personally a necessity for some people. Uh, so the, the thing is with the contemporary anti-choice movement is in large part uh, it derives from the political right wing reacting to Roe v. Wade and basically using it as a, a force of mobilization on the right to kind of unify uh, conservative Catholics and evangelical Christians who had been at odds in many ways before the 1970s uh, and to kind of create a coalition that was reliably voting for the Republican Party. But if you're talking about religious reactions to abortion before that, they're complicated and they run a gamut of different positions uh, that show shades of nuance and subtlety that are completely lacking from the current debate. Uh, so if you go back uh, to the Middle Ages, writers like Thomas Aquinas, who's an incredibly important uh, Catholic theologian, or Maimonides, who's an important Jewish thinker, they tend to view uh, a fetus as not being a person until the quickening, right, until there's movement, so about three months in uh, to uh, after conception, right? Um, and this is not to say, I mean, that is, uh, that's a more conservative position yes, than the definitely. one that I would hold to, yes. uh, but it's certainly a more liberal position uh, than one from uh, sort of anti-abortion absolutists. And it's one that I would suspect matches the opinions of most Americans yeah. who tend to be pretty uh, overwhelmingly moderate on the issue of abortion True. and view uh, legal abortion in some form as being something that should be the law of the land. 
So I, I always resent, uh, and I say this as somebody who writes quite a lot about religion, I say this as a, mm. as a baptized Catholic myself, uh, that I resent when um, the religious right speaks for everybody else as if this <laughs> has always been a settled position uh, since time immemorial, right? Because you can find uh, all sorts of examples uh, of people who speak of it in a way that is far more nuanced than the way that the right speaks about it today. Oh, of course, and it is an organizing tool just to pull mm, them together, yeah. as as you've so clearly uh, noted. What about so-called, uh, well, I call them late-term abortions. They have another mm-hmm. word for it. I can't remember what it is, kind of ugly. Uh, uh, but but it, t- Donald Trump and other zealots insist mm-hmm. infanticide is being practiced. Mm-hmm. They try to paint a picture of baby-killing. Of course, you know, that's very repugnant. I mean, you know, an an abortion is not a a pretty thing. People don't do it easily. It's not birth control. You know, it's something that that is not pleasant, and and sometimes it's the only choice, really, and it's better to have it safe and legal anyway. So what about this whole picture of of baby killing? Uh, What is the reality here? I'm really glad you brought this up because I think this also gets to the heart of uh, sort of what I've been saying about how anti-choice extremists uh, have no problem with uh, naked duplicity on issues, right? So when Donald Trump now has several times said before his followers uh, that a baby is born and that a doctor and a mother then decide whether to commit infanticide or not, the important takeaway that all of your listeners should have from that is that what Donald Trump said is a complete and unequivocal lie. No. That does not happen anywhere in the United States. And furthermore, it's a dangerous lie because it's going to endanger women, it's going to endanger doctors. That does not happen. When we're talking about late-term abortions, what we're talking about is an infinitesimally small percentage of 1% that happen. And the reason that they happen is because, because no woman is going to be pregnant for nine months and go through all of the incredible physical turmoil that that causes, and then in a cavalier way decide nine no. months in that they just want to have an abortion, right? <laughs> These are medically necessary abortions yes. that happen for wanted pregnancies because the alternative is that the mother could die, yeah. right? Or that the child will be born and live a very short, incredibly pain-filled life, right? Yeah. Nobody, these are, these are pregnancies that I should emphasize. These are people uh, that have picked out a crib. They have painted the nursery. They have a name for the child. They want to have this child. Yeah. So the way that Trump talks about this in such a kind of like loosey-goosey, cavalier way as he does, there's nobody, there's no pregnancy in this country where it gets to nine months and somebody just at the spur of the moment decides to have an abortion, right? These are things that are incredibly painful decisions that parents make. So it, for me personally, I think it is grotesque that he would lie about something like that. And because these are medically necessary things mm-hmm. that happen in, in an incredibly rare yes. in a number of instances, there's a real danger in, in speaking of them this way or making those particular procedures illegal because women will die as a result yes. of that. Uh, you know, they, they, they will, and they have. And, uh, ever since Roe versus Wade, anti-choices have been trying to go back to a pre-Roe world. They consider that mm. normal. They consider that proper. But you say what's going on is worse than that. I quote from your article, what the new legislation in Georgia, Missouri, Ohio, and especially Alabama threatens isn't just a return to, pre-Roe, to a pre-Roe world. It's to establish horrifically authoritarian new laws. 
End of quote. In what ways? How does it transform? I mean, author, new, horrifically authoritarian new laws. How can anybody who calls him or herself a conservative support authoritarian new laws? So in what ways is it worse than just going back to, to pre-Roe, which was bad enough? I think, I think a real uh, shift has occurred in terms of uh, what the anti-choice movement would like to do in terms of punishing women. Um, you know, a lot of anti-choice zealots historically would rhetorically speak um, of uh, women as, as the victims of abortion doctors or whatever. And like, I don't, obviously, I think that's absurd. Mm. But, uh, that's how they talked about it, right? Mm. These new laws have actually legislated that women themselves are going to be viewed in some ways as criminals. So you have first a rhetorical change, and this happened a couple years ago when Donald Trump, who I should point out had been pro-choice for his entire yes. political life until he ran for president, uh-huh. uh, said that he thought that women should be punished uh, for abortion. And that was something that even the most zealous of anti-abortion uh, proponents wouldn't normally have done. Now you see legislated uh, in, in places like Alabama and Georgia uh, laws that actually would categorize women as criminals. So that's a, that's a difference from the pre-Row kind of status quo. That's something that's worse than what existed before, um, to kind of hold True. women culpable for making their own medical decisions, you know? Yeah, and punishing them for that. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about how the fugitive slave law of the 1850s uh, has some disturbing similarities to the new anti-abortion legislation coming out of a, a few different uh, states. So, a- as we know, anti-choicers insist that, you know, this is about morality, preventing murder of unborn babies. They, they insist it's not political. Your reaction to that? Oh, well, I'm, I, I sort of am one of those left-wingers that adheres to the fact, or the idea that everything, in some sense, is uh, political, right? That's true. But I, I kind of think that that's, that's just another example of like a bad-faith argument on, on their end of things. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I always think, uh, you know, you, you asked me earlier, and I think it was a good question, is sort of the anger or resentment that anti-choice might, people might have about the sort of comparison that I make. You know, I certainly got a oh, yeah. host of emails that, well, that, that kind of let me know how upset uh, people are by that particular thing. But I, I'm always amazed when they talk about this kind of um, sanctity of a, of a fertilized egg that, and you quoted Barney Frank very effectively to that end, that that sort of empathy seems to like end very quickly after somebody's yes. been, been born. Yeah. And I had uh, one gentleman who, who sent me an email that basically said, uh, you know, the standard sort of uh, rhetoric of anti-choice extremists, that this is murder and how can you support murder and, and the only moral thing you can be is a Republican. And I thought, this is a, this is a person uh, who has no problem that right now uh, the U.S. government has taken children, actual children, from their parents at the border and have put them in camps, right? This is a person has no problem with that. So they have sympathy for (laughs) maybe a two or four cell thing that hasn't even attached itself to the wall lining yet, right? That that's a person in their mind, but a child who can speak and talk and cry, that's not a child in their mind that's worthy of their sympathy. So when they kind of, with this, this moralizing language, this sanctimony, uh, talk about how they're defending life. I just don't believe them because they're not. It doesn't bother me anymore. You know, yeah. it doesn't hit anything in my mind 
because it's so obviously a lie when they say it, you know? And and it does come back to, I mean, these, these toddlers who are being taken away and putting in cages and sometimes dying, well, they're mm-hmm. darker color after all. Mm-hmm. And I think, I really think at the base of this, as what we've come, you know, been talking about here is white male control over women, white male control over people of different colors. You know, that's that I, I, I think it's really what it's about. I completely agree with that. Uh, I, I think a lot of the sort of anti-choice movement has uh, been implicated and tied up with issues uh, of white supremacy in the past. Yeah. Uh, and I think the fact, you know, I, I always just go back to that. Uh, that state senator who said he didn't care about the destruction of fertilized eggs in test tubes, right? It was, it was this way of letting it be known that what they're concerned with is who and how people are giving birth and not with, you know, this kind of myth that a, an egg is the same as a human being, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's not always possible, but as regular listeners know, I try to end each show with suggestions and ideas as to what listeners can do if they're bothered by what we're talking about here. You say, like Amos Andrew Lawrence, if liberals in blue states haven't woken up already, like the fugitive slave laws woke people up in the North, it's time we became stark mad abolitionists, as had been done back then. What can we pro-choisters, those of us who believe women and African-Americans, all of us have equal rights... Mm-hmm. specifically with regard to fighting back against uh, the new 21st century version of fugitive slave laws. What what can people like in the North do about this? And, and how important is it as the uh, 2020 election uh, continues to gain steam? So I think that, and I, uh, I provide links at the end of the article to several different sort of regional organizations in places like Georgia and Alabama that are kind of fighting this stuff on the ground. And they're uh, you know, they're staffed by good liberal Southern people that believe in abortion rights and are, are helping, you know, their fellow citizens and neighbors in terms of making sure that those rights are protected. I know that there are, there's discussion uh, among some people about almost kind of a like underground railroad of things to, if these laws get more and more draconian in terms of assisting women who need abortions. I don't want to like recommend that anyone break the law or anything like that. Uh, but I do think in a, in a more moderate kind of way, uh, that organizations like Planned Parenthood absolutely need your donations. People need to make it a habit of donating to a group like Planned Parenthood who are providing not just uh, abortion services, which is actually a small percentage of what they do overall, yes, but reproductive health services and just sort of general health services to women and men alike, right? I think so. Uh, making yeah. sure that, like, if you are able to donate, that Planned Parenthood is at the top of your list, I think is is really, really crucial there. Uh, I do think that, as always, uh, abortion is going to be uh, a big thing uh, on the 2020 election. Yes. Um, I don't I don't know how that's going to play out. I don't know if it's going to encourage the right to come out more mm. uh, to try and sort of finish legal abortion off. Uh, I don't know if they will hopefully get complacent and stay home a little bit <laughs> and maybe uh, allow the left uh, to actually show up. But I think the important thing to always remember is that absolutely nothing is guaranteed in these sorts of struggles and that you have to be committed to them, uh, not just financially in terms of funding groups like Planned Parenthood, but making sure that in the Democratic primary you vote for the most pro-choice candidate uh, and that in the election you make sure, the general election, you make sure to vote for candidates that will protect abortion rights. And you just come out and do that sort of legwork uh, that the right is unfortunately better at doing yes. oftentimes than the left. That's true. The right tends to be very, very 
very well organized, especially as compared to the left. As, as uh, Abby Hoffman said so long ago, the relationship between the right and the left is perfect. The right is sadistic. The left is masochistic. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but That's very true. We got to do it. Well, this is very interesting discussion. I, you know, I never would have thought about uh, the Fugitive Slave Act and these new anti-choice acts. But uh, you know, it's the power of the state over the individual. Anything but conservatism. Well, if people want to follow your work, uh, is there a website uh, you can direct them to? Absolutely, yeah. I'm available at uh, www.edsimon, that's E-D-S-I-M-O-N, all lowercase, dot org, uh, and I keep that uh, updated. Um, every time I have a, a new article come out, I keep that regularly updated. And I'm also available on Twitter, uh, and my Twitter handle is at with Ed Simon, so that is uh, at ampersand, uh, uppercase W-I-T-H, uppercase E-D, uppercase S-I-M-O-N. Uh, and I'm on there fairly frequently. All right. Well, we will continue here. Thank you so much, Ed Simon, for being with us and keeping democracy alive. This is a big issue. And I'm going to play a song now which has a highly offensive word in it, but it relates to what we have been talking about here. Certain people of color having less rights being seen as less than. You may know what I'm talking about already. It's uh, an old song by John Lennon. Is the leader of the world Yes, she is Think about it Woman is the leader of the world Think about it Do something about it We make a paint a face and dance Be a slave and say that she don't love. If she's real, we say she's trying to be a man. While putting her down, we pretend that she's above us. Then we complain that she's too unworthy to be our friend. 